everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong, and I'm Pete's ID fellow. I am joined here today by Dr. Camille Cotton, who is the clinical director of the Transplant ID and Immunocompromised Host Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She has previously served as chair of the ID community practice of the American Society of Transplantation, as well as president of the Transplant ID section of the Transplantation Society. Highlights of her time as president include development of the International Guidelines on CMV Management After Solid Organ Transplantation. Dr. Cotton has also authored the past three versions of the AST Travel Medicine Guidelines and has been an author of the CDC Yellow Book chapter on immunocompromised hosts and travel for the past decade. Her clinical interests include vaccinations and transplant candidates and recipients, CMV, zoonoses, and travel and tropical medicine in the transplant setting. She is also a member of the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and has been heavily involved in national decisions regarding COVID-19 vaccines. Thanks for coming, Camille. Great to be here with you. I'm very excited that you're here. Uh, Before we jump in, we're doing our classic question. As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, could you share some piece of culture that you've enjoyed recently? You know, I have really been, I think because of Peloton, I've really been enjoying music um, again. I feel I've been listening to so so much science and medicine lately. I've actually, this might be a little embarrassing, but taken to listening to Jackson Brown really loud in the car on my way to work. (laughs) And it is just awesome. I hope that's my culture. (laughs) That's perfect. That's exactly the kind of thing I hope people will answer with. Today's consult question is actually building off of our last episode where we talked about a 70-year-old renal transplant patient who had abdominal pain and diarrhea related to CMV. And so we're going to just adjust and build off of that case. But to refresh everyone's memory and to give you uh, insight into the case, I'm still going to give you a little bit of background. So this was a 70-year-old male. He had end-stage renal disease secondary to hypertensive nephropathy and had a deceased donor renal transplant about a year and a half ago. He was CMV donor positive, recipient negative, and came in with about a month of fatigue, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. His maintenance immunosuppression is tacrolimus and mycophenolate. So inpatient, he started on IV gancyclovir, has some improvement in diarrhea, and his first two viral loads for the week one and week two are about the same. There's 6.2 log and then 6.25 log. He is on full-dose gancyclovir, and the transplant team has decreases immunosuppressin slightly. But a team member calls you and says, I'm worried. The first viral load hasn't significantly decreased. And I think this is a question that we get a lot. And I was hoping you could explain the time frame and the anticipated response to antiviral therapy in cases like this of CMV disease in transplant patients. Sure. Well, this is kind of a classic case. I will say this is somebody at significant risk of major CMV disease in that they were um, donor CMV, donor positive, recipient negative. Also the age of 70, um, you know, we're doing a lot more transplants in people in their 70s. And we've learned a lot about the immune system. Certainly with COVID-19, we've learned a lot about the immune system. And 
We see that also with CMB that older folks, D plus R minus, also have trouble um, clearing CMB and they seem to have worse CMB. That's somewhat anecdotal, um, but definitely something we see uh, clinically. And then the fact this person, it sounds like had a month of symptoms before they came in. So the disease often seems to be pretty entrenched, you know, like significant and a little harder to eradicate in that setting. This has this topic of the viral load monitoring has come up with each version of the CMV guidelines. And I have to say at the first CMV guidelines meeting, I had 40 odd experts in the room from all over the world. And I was so excited because I thought maybe they could explain to me why we start with a specific viral load and then one week out, we often either see the same number or sometimes even an increase because um, I thought they would be able to explain that to me. So what we called it was actually not viral load, but CMV DNAemia is actually the term that we should use. And that's what we use in the guidelines. And it actually helps to really understand why your numbers aren't coming down, because all we're measuring is DNA in the bloodstream. Like it doesn't reflect the live virus, dead virus. It's None of that. It's just the amount of DNA in the bloodstream. And you have to think that if you started treatment, maybe you lysed a bunch of cells, you know, maybe there's a bunch of more dead CMV circulating. So we often say that you can see a bump or at least not a fall at week one. But usually what, what we said in the guidelines is by week two, you should see some type of um, decrease in the level of CMV DNA emia. I have to say, I still refer to it as viral load because that's what we use colloquially. But when you think about CMB DNA emia, it does make sense that your DNA levels don't just plummet with initiation of therapy. I also think that when we use gancyclovir, we see sort of a little longer um, DNA emia than I've noticed that when patients are on phoscarnet, it seems to be um, tough acting phoscarnet. And they seem to have a more um, rapid decrease in their DNA emia. Although that's not really a reason to use phoscarnate because of the associated toxicities. But nonetheless, it is um, something I've, I've sort of uh, noticed over time. So then I guess I would say back to you. So then what happened by week two of intravenous gancyclovir? Yeah. So at this point, the viral load goes to right around five log and kind of stays there for two, really the next two weeks. And so the question of could this be resistant or refractory CMVDs comes to the forefront. And, you know, I, this case is quite general, but I wanted us to pit stop first and say, how do we define what is refractory CMV, resistant CMV? Because I think we have to be on the same page for the definition to be able to understand what's our threshold to test for resistance and when do we need to change agents. That is a great topic. So, right. So good job sort of not bringing it up at week one because uh, no one thinks that at week one, we're going to be making the diagnosis of resistant refractory disease, but usually by week two, three, four, you know, sort of heading into that area, by which time we should have seen a response in the level of DNA emia, as well as a clinical response. So that's where we should start to think of the clinical diagnosis of re resistant refractory disease. And that is actually first and foremost, a clinical disease. Like you, 
you know, you look at the patient, how they responded to therapy. Are they still having diarrhea? Are they still having their CMV symptoms? Um, one. And then two, has their um, DNA emia not improved over time? Um, or, you know, is it kind of more or less stayed stagnant and not decreased the way you hoped? So it's interesting. Um, the term resistant refractory disease is actually. I think a really nice one. It's something that we developed really kind of fleshed out in a uh, working group called the CMB forum, which is a variety of different CMB experts come to the table. And it's interesting because it's people from academics, clinical medicine, diagnostic companies, um, therapeutic companies, the FDA, the European agencies. And so um, everybody sort of comes to the table and agrees on the terminology and the first part of the disease should be refractory. And this patient has clinically refractory disease in that their level, their DNA emia hasn't fallen the way you liked. Um, so they have clinically refractory disease. And that actually encompasses a lot of people. It is a time where we would recommend, as in the flowchart in the CMB guidelines that we published, um, International CMB Guidelines, third version, transplantation 2018, that we would recommend that you send resistance testing, which is sequencing of the usually UL97 and UL54 genes. And then they may find a specific gene that suggests a certain uh, level of resistance to gancyclovir, valgancyclovir. Um, we don't recommend that with that initial week one high level, but then subsequently that's where we'd start to recommend sequencing. The sequencing can be pricey, so we don't just send it um, kind of willy-nilly, but um, when it's indicated, it certainly can um, help a lot. And if they find a resistance gene, which, you know, I have kind of mixed success. Sometimes I clearly have a patient who has resi clinically resistant against, you know, disease to gencyclovir but there's no um, resistance gene found. And then sometimes they do find a gene. I will say CMV is quite heterogeneous. So that's one thing we often think of these as being very homogeneous, but there obviously it makes sense that it would be quite heterogeneous in the body. So I think sometimes we just miss the capacity to make the uh, diagnosis of resistant disease. But when we do have resistance genes identified, I usually look up what the level of resistance is to gancyclovir. I often use the publications by Sun Wen Cho. I look at the ratio of um, the resistance mutation to um, wild type virus and see, you know, if it's a low level gancyclovir resistance situation, then I, then I would probably go on and try to use um, higher dose gancyclovir and see if I can overcome that mutation. For whatever reason, I always seem to hit the jackpot and get something that's really highly resistant to gancyclovir. At which point, sometimes I try high-dose gancyclovir as I'm waiting for the resistance testing to come back, but then I often don't have success with that. And many of my patients until now have had to go on to phoscarnet um, for treatment. You already did often the things that we do, which is number one, reduce the immunosuppression. I'll ask, can we reduce any further? Because that's really, CMV is really a disease of over-immunosuppression. And so one of the ways to get rid of CMB can be, you know, significantly reducing the immunosuppression. Of course, you don't want to lose the organ transplant or bone marrow transplant in the meantime, but that is a significant component. Sometimes if they have like hypogammaglobulinemia, I'll ask like, could we replace 
there are immunoglobulins with either IVIG or CMV immunoglobulin, which is really just IVIG that's enhanced for CMV highly positive donors. But those are sort of the basic things I do at that at that juncture. So in the scenario you're describing, send resistance testing and then contemplate what am I going to do is I wait for resistance testing to come back. If they're sick, I would often go sick. And I, by sick, I mean life-threatening disease, sight-threatening disease. You know, you're really kind of worried this person looks pretty bad. I would usually go with phoscarnet. And then if you're like, well, it seems kind of mild to moderate, like not great, but not so bad, then I'll try the high-dose cyclovir, And that's usually 10 milligrams per kilogram IV Q12. We often give pretty close to that dose, but many of these people have reduced renal function, so then you can cut it back somewhat. I have to say, I really, I personally don't have as much success with that, but that's what we often do as we're waiting for resistance testing to come back. A common question we get is, oh, can't we just do all of that with valcite? But I think once you have resistant, you're suspicious of resistant refractory disease, that's a good time to go with intravenous gancyclovir. You know exactly the dose being delivered. You mentioned this person has diarrhea. Maybe they have malabsorption. Maybe there's something else going on. So it's a good time to go with intravenous therapy if you are worried about resistant refractory disease. And you've kind of touched on this as you go, but what are the key factors that you think that ID fellows and trainees need to think about when they're sort of weighing in that early phase, do we think that this is a patient that more likely is going to have refractory resistant infection versus not? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, who gets resistant refractory disease? So it is people on more significant immunosuppression. So maybe they are what we call high immunologic risk, like maybe they're highly sensitized kidney transplant recipients. Maybe they had like an ankyovasculitis and went into transplant already getting like rituximab and immunosuppression in the background and then got even more immunosuppression. And you're already thinking like, oh, this is risky. If they went into transplant on Bactrim prophylaxis, that's probably a marker of somebody who's going to have problems on the other side. Um, you know, they went in on immunosuppression. The D plus R minus population is almost exclusively CMV donor positive recipient negative population is almost exclusively where we see resistant virus develop. That's about 20% of transplants in the United States. And then, so this patient, you, you mentioned the D plus R minus and the age also. Um, I've had a variety of older folks develop resistant refractory disease. And it's hard because then, you know, we'd been turning to phoscarnet or um, for a few years, we were enrolling in the Maribavir trial, which was a phase two or then phase three trial looking at Maribavir for resistant refractory disease and comparing it with standard of care, which was either high dose gancyclovir, phoscarnet or sidofavir, you know, whatever investigator um, choice was, was picked. And I did have um, several patients in the Maribavir arm. It's not a blinded trial in that they're either getting pills or intravenous therapy. So no blinding there. I had people who did really, really well with um, Maribavir. And then my last pit stop before we go on is, you know, you've mentioned some of the genetic testing or the resistant testing we're sending. Can you give sort of a high level overview of what that test is looking at? So there are just a couple of commercial laboratories in the U.S. Um, and if people are listening to this outside of the United States, I know that resistance testing can be hard to come by. 
some of the commercial labs in the United States will accept specimens from abroad, um, but that's just a little more challenging for the shipping and all of that. But it's not something that's readily available. It's only done at a very small number of commercial labs. And then basically they take the virus and they sequence it. And then they're looking for the UL97 and UL54 genes. Over 90% of initial mutations will be uh, with gancyclovir will be in the UL97 gene. And then subsequently, um, some of these people actually go on and accumulate additional um, mutations. And those can be in the um, UL54 gene. And we are even doing additional sequencing, looking for ribavir resistance and then latemavir resistance now that we have both of those. But the most common one, and some programs for cost savings just sequence UL97 initially, because that's where you'll see the vast majority of resistance genes for against cyclovir. Yeah. So our patient ends up having a UL97 mutation. And what do you think on adjusting therapy for this patient? Yeah. So I look at the mutation and it's a little tricky to figure out. They don't actually spell out in the information they send to you, you know, like the ratio of mutant to wild type and what the likelihood of gancyclovir success would be. So then I usually look it up in the Sun Wencho papers, um, which I save in Dropbox and um, do a lot of control. We can put some links. <laughs> do a lot of control F. Uh, there. Um, although he has a really nice section in the CMB guidelines where he describes a lot of the mutations, but not necessarily like the level of resistance conveyed. Um, and depending on the mutation that we find, if it's, you know, pretty highly resistant against cyclovir, that's where usually I would just switch to phoscarnet. Um, I will say that in December, the FDA approved meribavir for use in um, resistant refractory disease. So I haven't actually used it yet. We are really fortunate in that we don't actually have such high rates of resistant refractory disease. If I take a step back, one of the big ways to avoid getting resistant refractory disease is always dosing the gancyclovir correctly, the valcite prophylaxis correctly. And where I've heard of programs that have rates of 10 and 20% resistant refractory disease, it's usually because they haven't uh, dosed the gancyclovir valcite um, post-transplant, usually valcite these days, valgancyclovir, rather than intravenous gancyclovir. And when they underdose valgancyclovir, that's where you get resistance mutations. So first and foremost, dose the prophylaxis correctly. That is key. I always say that's the cardinal sin. Some people cut the dose in half and they have leukopenia. Well, they're not doing anybody any favors in that that really increases the risk of resistant refractory disease. I always say if you need to if you have really bad leukopenia with, val, uh, with valgancyclovir post-transplant, hold the drug. I would personally give like acyclovir or famvir or valacyclovir for disseminated zoster prophylaxis. And then I would just do weekly monitoring for CMB, what we call preemptive therapy, and just monitor weekly for you know 12 to 16 weeks. And if they do develop CMB, treat. But um, yeah. Um, so first and foremost, always dose your drugs correctly up front and you won't get to this problem situation. I'm glad you brought that up because I was hoping we would circle back at some point if I could remember about making sure we have appropriately dosed medication, both for prophylaxis and, you know, a lot of these patients have renal 
worsening renal dysfunction because of whatever their end organ disease. So making sure that we as the ID team keep on top of the dosing. Right. It can be really challenging in this population to know what their renal function is. And um, I hate to admit that I was listening to another podcast. Um, I'm going to, of course, there's only this podcast, right, to listen to. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's not like every day. So I I was listening to an annals annals of internal medicine, and they were going on and on about calculating the GFR and that like cystatin C can be an inflammatory marker. And I was thinking, boy, this is why I have so much trouble as an infectious disease specialist trying to figure out the GFR. But, you know, for not so much in pediatrics, but especially like with some of our kind of chronically ill adults, many lose a lot of muscle mass, you know, waiting for liver transplant, heart transplant, whatever it might be. They lose a lot of muscle mass. They Some can have like quite low GFRs, but their creatinine might be like one. So you think like, oh, the creatinine's one, you know, their GFR 70, we're good. But actually there's a lot of other factors that go into it. So it's really hard to figure out their true kidney function. I always say the best, best, best way to prevent resistant refractory diseases is um, dosing the valcite correctly, valgancyclovir, gancyclovir correctly, either for prophylaxis or for treatment. And I go, there's a table in the CMB guidelines, and I always say this table needs to be like followed perfectly. And if you do, you stay out of the woods. So what I was saying before is that like we see maybe one to two cases of resistant refractory disease per year at Mass General, fortunately. So luckily we avoid it, but lately People that have come in have been in the uh, phase three Marubavir versus um, investigator-initiated treatment trials. Now we do have this option of having Marubavir, which, you know, is pretty game-changing. That's exciting. It is really exciting to have something new. I mean, we've had several new anti-CMB treatments come out, Latemavir for prophylaxis and bone marrow transplant patients. Not a therapeutic drug. It's a prophylactic drug. It has a really low barrier to resistance. It takes just a few viral replication cycles to develop resistance to latomavir. So um, it's great to have moribavir. It's an you know oral treatment. Until now, I was putting people in the hospital usually for two to three weeks on intravenous phoscarnate with like labs twice a day. Heavy, heavy, That's heavy. So tough. Yeah, it's so tough. Using phoscarnate. And, you know, when you tell the patient what's going to happen, like, you know, you're going to be here for two to three weeks, you're going to get your mag and your FOSS and K replete it all the time. And we're going to give it to you oral and IV. And it's just, oh, and it's really kind of like a metabolic madness. And then it's always a shame to be giving it to someone who's had a kidney transplant and then they have nephrotoxicity and you're kind of like <laughs> wondering what you're doing and that you're potentially harming the kidney. Although I will say that, so I never give outpatient phoscarnate. I just don't do it. I don't feel that it's safe enough. But inpatient, I've had a really good experience giving phoscarnate with respect to toxicity. Heavy, heavy, heavy monitoring, following, you know, labs like twice a day until they're really in some kind of steady state. But it often is twice a day for two to three weeks. Um, I've had a really good success, but it's obviously a nightmare for the patient. So all of a sudden we have a drug where basically, you know, go take these pills twice a day. I'll see you in clinic next week. As long as they're clinically well and can go home, I'm a complete game changer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think as my other question, let's say this patient had a 
UL54 and a UL97. Maybe they have a Foscarnet mutation. You know, how how do we tackle that? (laughs) Obviously not a quick answer. Yeah, well, and especially the more they get exposed to, uh, the more uh, mutations they accumulate over time. And we do have these devastating cases where they accumulate multiple mutations. It's usually people who are profoundly immunocompromised. We do see, I would say every year I have like one or two cases of people who have just really, really, really refractory CMV. They have like a, a decent absolute lymphocyte count. They're not on that much immunosuppression. And for the life of me, I cannot clear their CMV and it just keeps coming back. So there are those people and they, they, I, there are genetic factors that um, we don't test for in a clinical scenario, but have been identified in research settings um, and other issues such that some people really just keep having CMB. And those are the people that get that accumulate a bunch of mutations. And some of them actually even pass away. It's been pretty, pretty rare in recent times, but some people actually do pass away from like fully resistant CMB. But that's why it's important to manage them really, really, really well from the get-go. And I think really careful, fastidious management. That's why I'm proud of the CMB guidelines that we wrote in that it kind of is like if you kind of follow the rules and do really good management and really careful testing and whatnot, usually you don't end up in a pickle. But by the time you, when you do end up in a pickle, often it's hard to kind of crawl out of that mess. Yeah. And then I think there is a section uh, in the guidelines on this, but the other question I was going to ask is using CMV specific immune monitoring. Are you using that? How are you using that? Yes. Um, so that's a great question and a sort of a hot topic. So there are a couple of tests out there. There's the quantiferon CMV, which is sort of like quantiferon TB, um, looking for uh, you know T cell response to CMV. So that's not commercially available, but has been used in uh, multiple research settings. And it really does look, does look sort of promising, um, especially in CMV positive folks, um, determining either the length of prophylaxis or their risk of recurrent disease after the end of treatment. Although, like I said in the beginning, we never really worry that much about the seropositive folks to begin with. So the fact that we now have a new diagnostic toy uh, sort of isn't really all that useful because it hasn't hasn't been shown to really be helpful in the D plus R minus population. There's another similar test called T-spot CMB, which is, of course, like the T-spot um, TB. Um, and I actually helped lead the largest trial in kidney transplant recipients and really what we wanted is to find, for, especially for the D plus R minus population, how long do we need to get prophylaxis for? Like, can we just give three months, six months, nine months? You know, when is there a way of looking at the end of prophylaxis and saying, okay, you're all done. You're not going to get CMV. We're going to stop your prophylaxis at, you know, month five, month eight, whatever it was. But it's kind of a catch-22 because we're trying to use this immune monitoring tool for people who are not immune. So it, it didn't work out. It did work really well for the seropositive population so that we could know the optimal duration of prophylaxis for them. But we already knew that they were going to be pretty okay anyway. So I'm sort of like, why do we spend additional money 
on them when they weren't really the problem ones. So unfortunately, those two have not worked out for the, so well for the D plus R minus. Viracore has um, a CMB specific uh, test. But interestingly, I think there's only one uh, publication that's a really mixed population. And basically, we don't have published data on its use. It is commercially available. I know many people send it. I often say, like, what's the utility in sending it? Because often they have, like, highly resistant refractory disease or recurrent CMV. And I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of, a, I was brought up sort of old school. Um, and we were taught to not send tests that are expensive unless you, you know, absolutely need them. But I would say, like, well, what do you think that patient's going to have? And they're like, well, they're going to have not much immune response to CMV. And I'm like, yeah, we knew we knew that. Like, we knew that. So um, I think we need a lot more data on the testing that's being done at Viracore. We're not actually allowed to send it through my hospital because of the lack of data. Um, and so they don't want to pay for something for which we don't have really a um, known clinical outcome or that it's uh, really clinically useful. Um, and as I mentioned, it's pretty expensive. So, yeah, I sort of, that's the, like, you know, mystique of CMV. If we could have things that would predict the risk of infection, recurrent infection with these diagnostics, that would be wonderful. Maybe five to 10 years ago, I was really optimistic. And now I'm sort of less optimistic. One thing that would be great is if we had a good CMV vaccine, maybe then we could use an immune monitoring test so that we could know like with vaccine, with or without prophylaxis, I mean, hopefully the vaccine's so good, we wouldn't need prophylaxis, that would be awesome. Yeah. But if if we did have the capacity to say, maybe do a hybrid approach, maybe those tests would be useful in that setting. Yeah. Moderna has is starting um, trials of CMB vaccines, uh, mRNA CMB vaccines in um, women of childbearing age. And so I'm waiting in the wings and hopefully they will do um, a similar study in transplant recipients eventually. That's exciting. I mean, that's a great segue. You know, I was going to end by asking you, what do you think is the most exciting thing that you're sort of on the lookout for, for CMV and transplant? I think there's a ton of exciting things I feel like are constantly coming out, but Anything in particular you want to highlight? Yeah, well, um, I guess I'm, so we've looked for CMV vaccines for over 50 years, both um, for the congenital CMV space as well as for um, immunosuppressed patients. So I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe Moderna um, and others may have novel approaches to CMV vaccine development. Unfortunately, it's been a lot harder. We had a nice review with Stanley Plotkin recently of all the various approaches that were underway. Um, City of Hope has an interesting uh, vaccine, largely for the stem cell population, but there's sort of nothing that looks like, you know, huge on the horizon, um, but that that would be wonderful. I do want to mention there's some interesting stuff going on with um, uh, CMB-specific T-cells um, that are out there. That's largely for like really refractory disease, but that's kind of interesting. Um, and now that we finally have multiple therapeutic options, It'll be interesting to see if we might be able to come up with some cocktail approaches to decrease the risk of antiviral resistance development. So that's something that's sort of in the future, but you do you do wonder if combinations of various antivirals might help, especially specific patients, or maybe with specific cases of resistant refractory disease. 
Well, thank you so much for coming. Any closing thoughts? I'll leave it open one more time. But we covered a lot of topics that are both in the guidelines, but also thinking about these sort of that edge of what what's next and, and what we do in these complicated patients. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a challenging field and I think it requires sort of a real understanding of of a lot of different factors, which is kind of what we love in ID, right? Yeah. <laughs> um and sort of reading the tea leaves and and careful interpretation. I've certainly had the good fortune of working with um international experts on guideline development and I've learned a tremendous amount from them. I'm happy to have emails and discussion and discuss cases and I can introduce people to the right people to talk to if needed or whatever because it does take it it's more challenging than one than one might think it should be especially maybe not 98% of the cases but maybe like a lot of things in ID it's that two, those 2% of cases that are hard for us and then you know certainly feel welcome to call on your CMB friends uh, for additional help Thanks to Camille for joining Febrile today. And coming up next is a series about congenital infections. And I cannot wait for you to hear these. They're awesome. So another plug for the Febrile survey. If you haven't filled it out yet, I have a survey to better understand how you use Febrile to teach and learn. So the survey is voluntary, anonymous, and should only take about five minutes. You can find the link to the survey on our Twitter page and the description link for the episode or on the website. Our usual disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find our consult notes with links to references from the episode, as well as our library of ID infographics. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.